This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host, Corey Nathan, and I am so grateful to have a place to talk about faith and politics and big ideas in our culture with all kinds of interesting, accomplished folks of goodwill in good faith. And it is an honor to announce that our program is a part of the Democracy Group. That's a network of podcasts that examines what's broken in our democracy and how we can work together to fix it. Remember to subscribe if you haven't already. Tell a friend, give us a good rating and leave a review. Easiest way to find us is our main site, which is www.politicsandreligion.us. That's www.politicsandreligion.us. Or you can feel free to connect with me on all the social media apps, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, Post News, Tribal. I'm on all the crazy, cool kid apps. <laughs> at Corey S. Nathan. That's at C-O-R-E-Y, S is in Sam, N-A-T-H-A-N, at Corey S. Nathan. All of that helps get the word out so more people can participate in the conversation like the one we're having today with former Congressman Denver Riggleman. Denver Riggleman supported advanced intelligence analysis and technical development programs during his over two decades as an intelligence officer, NSA advisor, federal contractor, research and development technology lead, and successful CEO of support companies for the Department of Defense. A veteran of the global war on terror and multiple worldwide operations, he served with honor in the U.S. Air Force for nine active duty years and is a former member of the House of Representatives from Virginia's 5th Congressional District, which he represented as a Republican from 2019 to 2021. Former Congressman Riggleman is also a former t senior technical advisor for the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol. He's a CEO of Riggleman Information Intel Group and co-owner of the award-winning Silverback Distillery. Definitely going to have to ask you about that. But also, I got to say, uh, former Congressman Riggleman is the New York Times bestselling author of The Breach. I bet Bigfoot, It's Complicated, is going to come on that New York Times bestseller list, too. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> How you doing? Thanks for coming in. How's everything going? It's going pretty good, Corey. Thanks for having me. Happy happy day. Happy, happy day. day. I appreciate you having me. Happy day. This is a real treat for me. So, I, I mean, I have to start. The most important thing. How did you and Christine get into the whiskey business? Oh, my goodness, man. Well, so back in uh, 2012, I sold my first company, which was called Analyst Warehouse, which was a company that supported United States Air Force, National Security Agency, Special Operations. So uh, when I sold that company, I told my wife, Corey, I said, hey, you've been following me around since we were 16 years old. It's your turn. you know." And uh, I said, whatever you want to do, I'll support. And we were in Scotland. I had taken uh, my daughters and my wife to Scotland to celebrate the sale of my company. We were at Ben Nevis Distillery in Fort William, Scotland, and Christine, I think, got enamored with the master distiller there. I don't think it was inappropriate, but it was damn close, right? And then so, uh, but uh, she loved it. And, uh, uh, but yeah, when we got home, we were on the 21st floor of a condo in Florida vacationing after Scotland. It was a, it was a fun few weeks. And she goes, I know what I want to do. I said, what's that, honey? And she goes, I want to start a distillery. So my wife is the one who wanted to be a master distiller. And now we have the, I think the only ma uh, mother daughter master distilling team in the United States. And we started Silverback Distillery and, and Apton, Virginia in the Blue Ridge Mountains outside of Charlottesville. We opened another one in the Poconos in Pennsylvania. So it's been one hell of a ride. Oh, wow. That's, uh, you know, it's funny. I, I was saying before we hit record that I went to a whiskey tasting last night. I mentioned Silver Silverback and I, I'm talking to the uh, one of the owners of, of Silverback. They said, did you know that's one of the, that one of, if not the only mother daughter owned uh, female-owned distillery. So where, where where is Silver? So there's one, you say, up in uh, Pennsylvania and one down yeah, in, the, in Western Virginia? Yeah, we retrofitted an aircraft hangar in the Poconos in Pennsylvania at East Stroudsburg, uh, and then uh, which I'm really proud of. But it has, that's only been open a few years. That's fairly new, but it's gorgeous. 37-foot bars. And, wow. you know, we, sm we smoke drinks on our own barrel heads there. But we do that in Virginia, too. So we have a 50-acre distillery property outside of Charlottesville, Virginia, about two and a half hours west of DC uh, in the Blue Ridge Mountains here. So uh, we're on the river. I look out right now, I got 3000 feet of river frontage out here. And uh, you know, so it's, uh, doesn't suck. Oh doesn't man, suck, it doesn't, doesn't suck. suck. That's yeah, it's above average. 
Uh, I'm definitely going to have to let you know. I have um, occasion to go like this summer. I'm hoping to go to the Braver Angels convention in Gettysburg that they have around July 4th. So I'm going to have to take a little bit of a a detour up to the Poconos or something or my buddies down uh, down in D.C. take a detour out to the the distillery in, in Virginia there. So it's a must. Let me know. We got we got barrel houses, man. You could break into them, you know. Let me yeah, know. That's awesome. So there was um there was something that you related in the book that I thought really strikes at the heart of it's it's both heartbreaking, heart wrenching, but also strikes at the heart of why you why I think you do what you do. But you can tell me. I'd like to know your thoughts. So I just want to read a text thread you shared in the breach. Uh, like I said, New York Times bestselling book. It's a great read, by the way. I, I was so entranced for anybody who's engaged in, in important matters that are happening in our country. Uh, so this text thread is from late 2020 after the election, but before the events of January 6th, it's a text thread sent to you by your mom. Uh, she said, oh man, it's going to hit me. Um, how does it feel making touchdowns for the opposing team? You just ha- keep handing over ammunition to the enemy. What is wrong with you? She wrote, what happened to you? You went social. You want socialism. You want babies murdered because they are not perfect. I don't even know you anymore. What will it take to wake you up, son? I love you so, but cannot stand by and listen to your elitist attitude and being praised by elitist journalists and Democrats. Uh, she went on to say, I've cried over you and my heart is broken by you. And the last part of that thread, she said, you are not smarter than truth. So I, I, I'd love to um, I'd love to get your thought. Thank you, by the way, for sharing such a personal note in that book. Um, but I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I. Um... You know, it's um, this book was intensely personal when I wrote it. I think a lot of people misunderstood it initially because I did try to make data and facts exciting. Um, but I also wanted to show really what um, what had happened in our country sort of with this conspiracy or cult mindset surrounding Donald Trump and really surrounding what the GOP had become at that time. And, and you know, Corey, that text, I will tell you, surprised me also. Right. And, and we had had a phone conversation before that that was a little bit more brutal than that. Um, and I think that text was after a Jake Tapper uh, TV interview, but it's hard for me to actually wrap my arms around it because I do love my mom. Uh, who doesn't, you know, love their mother, right? I mean, I love her to death. And I actually wrote this chapter. I, Corey, if if you read it, you know, I tried to to write it with love, right? And I thought it would help with healing. It didn't <laughs> really. Uh, it had really again an effect that was even worse than I thought it could have, you know, had. But um, I think what we have seen, um, and the way that I was raised in a very religious setting. I think we've seen sort of this metastasization of a belief systems that really overtake facts or just overtake basic truths. And, you know, my training wasn't intelligence. So really the, the anger at that point that my mother had was I had really turned against Donald Trump and had come out very strong against QAnon. So what you're reading is actually me going out against, which, you know, I don't, I don't think my mother fully understands, you know, the conspiracy theory mindset or, or QAnon and things like that, but she certainly had those belief systems but I think it was really coming out against Donald Trump. And I think that's the effective or, or, or how it affects people, um, Corey, is really when a cult or a cult of personality or some distant figure actually trumps family. I'm not saying that as a pun, but actually trumps family. And I think that's happened to so many people in the country. I thought it would be helpful to say that none of us are immune, you know, from that sort of fight of facts over fantasy. And uh, it was a devastating time for me. It's still devastating, uh, but love my mother. And I hope one day that uh, uh, we can come to some kind of resolution on that. And, and and to this day, I don't know if I should have put that chapter in the book. Honestly, Corey, I'm not sure if it was the right thing to do or not. I just thought at the time it was appropriate to maybe highlight what's going on in our country right now. Yeah. And to your point, you know, the book is a lot about both a 30,000 foot view, as well as getting into the microcosmic details of text threads and just real Intel work, the dirty work of Intel work. Right. It's also how do we solve these problems? And I think at one point in the book, you said that intelligence, information, you know, uh, but but also um, it's about relationships. I I appreciated you sharing this story because at the end of that chapter um, and also at the end of the book and the acknowledgments, I saw that there Maybe it's not resolved. It sounds like there's still, you know, unanswered questions, some some hard feelings. But the way you describe that moment in time when they when you came back together, when your sister was in the ICU, I thought may, maybe there is an opportunity. Whether it's something as dramatic as that, when you were about to get open heart surgery and your your sister was in the <laughs> ICU, and that right above me, 
Yeah. Right above me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Was it? Yeah. Right above me. Yeah. I was right below her. And you know, the thing is Corey is that, you know, I had a, I did have surgery. It wasn't open heart at that point. We didn't know what was happening. I, I had had issues before, but I think I never thought I would be affected by anxiety, stress, and just an overwhelming sort of breakdown based on the fact, you know, my sister was dying right that second. My mother had just had to sign a do not resuscitate. And I saw the strength of my mother at that time, the love I had for her. And we had had this sort of awfulness going on between us beforehand, you know, sort of familial. And she's sitting beside me in the ER while my daughter is dying. My, I mean, my sister, I'm sorry. Her she's daughter, sitting, yeah. Yeah, she's sitting beside me while her daughter is dying above me, right? My sister, just unbelievable, right? And just, um, I, I don't know, man. It, and, and at that time, I was on the committee. Uh, I was having some issues of my own with the committee as I'm looking at, you know, Jenny and Clarence Thomas, and I'm finding data that, that I, that I ex maybe expected to see, but was more chilling than I thought. And again, it's all in the data, but I think all of that together with my family, with businesses, with what happened in my congressional race, right, with being beat by somebody who believes in QAnon, a conspiracy theorist, you know, all that stuff, I think, must have just coalesced in that hospital room, Corey. And I think, uh, you know, what a what a crazy time that was. Yeah. You know, I, I definitely want to talk about January 6th and what you refer to as social contagions. Uh, but I, I think it is important to to quote from the uh, the end of your book. Um, again, this man, this cuts deep. You say, Mom, mm -hmm. I might not have taken the exact road you wanted me to, but without you, I wouldn't be where I am today and I wouldn't change a thing. I love you. <laughs> You're getting me, uh, former Congressman. I'm so <laughs> I listen, it makes me emotional now. I'm actually trying not to, you know, I keep the smile on my face, you know, and uh, because it's uh, it's a it's a brutal, and that's what the thing is, is I don't want people to think that. Corey, I don't, it, it is a brutal book though, right? It's, it's, there's some funny in there, right? There is some things that are, that are, you, you laugh in horror, um, you know, especially in, in some of the chapters like with Jenny Thomas or Ray Epps. But I think, um, I think it's, uh, you know, laughter through tears. What, what does that say? You know, life is laughter through tears. And I think that's pretty much how I've lived the past 53 years. <laughs> and that, and that, you know, so there you go. So I think if they do make a book, uh, make a movie out of your Bigfoot book, I know the guy to play the part, and that, that is Patrick Byrne. <laughs> <laughs> He's tall. I mean, I'm yeah. telling you, man. <laughs> I mean, he'd fit the Bigfoot suit. I mean, uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I think Byrne would be a great, you know. Plus, he might believe it anyway. He might believe yeah. he's actually Bigfoot. I mean, this is this is a this is a guy who believes the Lord of the Rings is a documentary, you know. So uh, there you go. Damn. All right. So um, before we get into social contagion, politics and all that good, beautiful, rich, wonderful comedy. Um, no, uh, I, I just want to paint the picture a little bit about who you are. So um, can you tell us a little bit about apartment A1? <laughs> are you talking about back when I was a kid? Yeah, like where you grew up and, and uh, Mormon oh my God. take it wherever you want to take oh it. Oh my God, apartment A1, man, Coverstone Apartments, 10928 Coverstone Apartments, Manassas, Virginia, um, you know, raised uh, really, you know, my dad left when I was really young. So, um, you know, single mom for a while, the mom who, you know, still loves so much, but, you know, without her, again, I wouldn't be here, right? She, uh, she had me at 17 you know, raised sort of, um, I would say by my mom, but also my grandparents on both sides for a while, you know, as we hopped from house to house sometimes. And, but she met my stepfather, I think in 1974, 1975, she was married March 75 to my stepfather, but by 78, you know, they had started a full conversion into the Mormon church at that time, Corey. So, yeah. um, but in that small apartment, you know, I had a lot of brothers and sisters, you know, that started to come out. Right. And, <laughs> You know, but how do you fit what seven kids, nine kids in apartment A1? Yeah. Like, oh well, 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 no, what so at that point, you know, I was the oldest of eight, but I think by 1980, we had one, two, three, four. I think we had a two or three bedroom small apartment. I think okay. we had four kids in there, two parents, and a fifth kid on the way when uh, we finally moved to my grandfather's old house on Loman Drive in Virginia. Um, and again, March of 1980. So um, I think it was March 4th, 1980, uh, we moved to 9810 Loman Drive, right? And uh, that's where I went to Stonewall Middle School. I went to Sinclair Elementary, then Stonewall Jackson Middle School, wow. then Stonewall Jackson High School. I was a Raider. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, 
I mean, we're in the Nashville, Virginia Corps. I mean, the Battle of Bull Run, you know, the national parks right there, you know, for the Civil War. So, um, you know, that's that's how I was sort of brought up. Right. And also brought up in the Mormon church. So very religious, um, very, very religious. You know, I played a lot of sports, but always was taught, you know, that uh, our religion was the only true religion. And really us as the way we're configured, we are the dominant, you know, human beings on the planet as Mormon people, um, you know, and, uh, you know, the only true and, and uh, you know, what a, what a way to be raised. And but yeah. I, my grandparents were Southern Baptist, so they weren't real happy that I was. <laughs> I was being raised Mormon or LDS, right? right so, right. you know, they were always like, you know, this is, and even as a young kid, I'm talking about 11, 12, 13 years old. They're like, hey, you know, that's hogwash. You know, you need to be Southern Baptist. You need to go over here. And my grandmother, my mom's side was raised Methodist. So that's, you know, it was just an absolute incredible upbringing with all the religious influences that I had. And as you can see now, I'm not really religious at all anymore. You know, I sort of moved away from all that because I think being raised that way, I remember that there was always this sort of belief that faith was stronger than any facts-based thing that you could see. You know, when you're being raised as Mormon, you're told that any book that you read uh, that actually goes against the Mormon religion uh, was actually the devil. And you're an apostate to embrace that or read that. And I think that's the thing that we see right now is that you're an apostate, you know, if you remove yourself from the GOP or, you know, if you remove yourself from that tribe or you remove yourself from a belief system that more people believe in your mob or around you in a mob than, than you do. Right. They, they overwhelm you. And I think that's why I hate bullies. Um, I was raised as a bit of a scrapper. I was very small. And I remember I got my butt kicked Corey so many times. Um, but by the age of eight or nine, I remember my stepdad's like, you got to fight. Right. And, and so I, I, I did push back. I still have been actually had my butt handed to me more times than I can count when I was a kid. Uh, but I didn't back down too much. And uh, I think I think what happens is if you get enough ass whoopings, um, <laughs> you start to you actually start to get a little bit immune to it. And you also learn how to to do a little bit back yourself. Yeah. So, I, you know, I think somebody told me once, Corey, you know, you're really not a man and I'm not trying to, you know, you know, maybe I, in this new world. But you're not really a man till, till you've kicked some ass and had your ass kicked. And I've and I've definitely had plenty of both. <laughs> So, so, uh, that really, my, my, you know, being raised the way I was, I think I learned that I'm not a religious guy. I think that, I think there are a lot of cults or a lot of belief systems that really overwhelm a person's ability to think rationally. And I think a lot of times that faith can actually turn you against friends and family based on belief systems that for somebody who looks at facts or data could be a little wackadoo. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because that, that wanting to fight back against bullies shows up in so many different times, so many different ways whether it's when you were starting to question uh, the Mormon church or your work on the January 6th committee, your, your work in Congress, your, even as a distiller, you know, fighting up against some of the institutional forces as you're building your distillery. It's amazing yeah, how man. that fighting against big bullies uh, shows up. Yeah, it'll, it'll give you some scar tissue, though. And you get tired. You know, I'm 53 and I look like I'm 108. You know, I think that's, you know, I think that's all... <laughs> I, I remember I was I was sitting in a bar the other day, not you know, of course, but it was my own uh, at the <laughs> distillery. But I, <laughs> but somebody goes, you know, Denver, you look great for your age. I'm like, well, well, thank you, man. He goes, he goes, honestly, he goes, nobody would think that you're like 55 or 56. I'm like, wait, I'm 53. Yeah. What are you talking about? You know. So I, I had a very similar experience a couple of weeks ago. I was talking to this lady and for, for whatever reason, she was talking to, there, there was another person involved in the conversation. They were talking about the year that they were born. And uh, I said, um, yeah, yeah, I'm 71. And uh, she goes, you look great for 71. I said, no, no, no. I, I was born in 71. She goes, oh, you look like shit for having been born in 71. <laughs> oh, man. I, you know, yeah, it's so funny, man. I, Cause uh, by the way, you look great. I think, right. Um, but I, you know, I was a St. Patrick's day baby, you know, March 17th, 1970. And, uh, I was almost named Patrick. Oh man. And then I got the, yeah, but I got the name Denver Lee Riggleman, you know, the third, um, because I am the third, but, uh, yeah, I've had some, it's been a crazy life, Corey, you know, and you're right. I, I when you put it that way, if you think about even my military career, fighting ethnic cleansing in Kosovo in 99, one of the first to deploy in 9-11, you know, going to NSA, starting my own company, starting my own companies because I hated, you know, how other companies were run. 
but I will tell you, I've cut off my nose to spite my face more times than I count. Um, so especially like you said in Congress, you know, when I officiated the same sex wedding in summer of 2019. That's when I first became aware of you, by the way. I, I always oh, had an eye for man. somebody who did something uh, that was independent. You know, uh, e- even Ooh. if they're the voting record, your voting record was pretty, pretty conservative, you know, along the lines of, of Kinzinger and Cheney. And yet you had mm-hmm. individual moments where you asserted your independence, your independence of thought, your independence of principles, your independence of, of integrity. And that's when you first caught my um, my attention. So uh, when I read and I, you know, put to get two and two together that you were actually running to be a part of the Freedom Caucus. I was like, oh, shit, wait, hold on. And something was like not making sense because my right, you know, my awareness yeah. of you started around that time uh-huh. of the, uh, the, the uh, conducting a, a gay wedding. So um, I remember. Oh yeah, I, and I and I and I address this all the time. People are like, "Well, how in the hell could you have been in a Freedom Caucus yeah. and officiated a gay wedding and been on the Climate Change Caucus, which might have been worse for the conservatives in my district than the gay wedding?" Honestly, I think what it came down to is I won by one vote. I am an accidental congressman, Corey, and I had never run, you know, for federal office before. I tried ten weeks in governor, just just not even that long before that. I hadn't been in. I'm, and I'm 53 at my first even, I barely voted until I was 47. I didn't give a rat's ass, you know? So but You can I say fuck, by the way. I saw you wanted to yeah, say, I, I, I know. <laughs> we got well, the explicit rating, so it's all good. <laughs> well, that's good because uh, I've been known to do that a bit. Um, but I think, um, I think what happened, Corey, is that, uh, you know, in life, you think that you won't compromise anything. And in order for me to get elected, I remember I told my consultant, I'll never compromise. I'll always be that person of integrity. I just won by one vote. And he looked at me, and this is a lesson that I think everybody should think about in politics. And this is as serious as I can get as he goes, well, Denver, did you want to be a member of the Freedom Caucus? I said, well, no. He goes, but you just pledged to be a member of the Freedom Caucus to win an election. He goes, you've already made your first political decision. You already went against some of your baseline principles to win. And um, that consultant said, listen, you've got to act a little crazy to beat the crazier members because it's all about winning. That's all that matters. And that's even what McCarthy told me that winners make history. When I went into the uh, orientation, he said, who cares how you win? Is that you're going to make history? Losers don't make history. My Lord, you know what? And if I didn't do the gay wedding or if I didn't join the climate change caucus or I would have voted 100 percent how my local committees wanted me to in the Freedom Caucus, I would be a congressman today. That's simple. Or if I had a primary and not a church convention with, you know, 2,500 people in the church five minutes from my opponent's house. Everything about this was so wrong and so brutal. Now I'm pissed. And the thing is, is I don't like bullies. So I continued, right? J6 committee. I wrote a book. I'm dragging people through the woods. I probably have more influence now than I ever did. Um, I'm on every, I've been on every major network from 60 Minutes to Meet the Press to ABC Nightly News to you name it, man. Got a front line coming out. Got an appearance on that front line. Got another another front line. I was about the time I was on the Mike Flynn front line, you know, and um, I I, I just did uh, two more movie shoots. Um, I got one book shopped for a movie right now. I got a second book that's about to be shopped for a movie. And you know what? Why? Because sometimes when you lose with integrity, you actually can win. And I think maybe maybe in the future I might have a chance to run for office again. But I find it so distasteful because I don't know if I have the ability after what I did the first eight to nine months in office where I went against my principles, I don't know if I have the ability to do that. I just don't know if I can pander and compromise enough to be an effective politician as far as getting elected. And I do think that politics and integrity are, are mostly mutually, mutually exclusive at this point. And unless you're batshit crazy, and then you have all the integrity world of the Marjorie Taylor Greens or the Bob Goods in my district or the Lauren Boberts, right? Their integrity is in their insanity and their belief systems, which really are representative, you know, of the evangelical bent and the conspiracy theories that sort of bloom out of that. So, yeah, I mean, I guess you can have integrity in your insanity, but if you have an integrity in facts and sanity, I think it's very difficult to win an election today. So as a, a wannabe optimist, let me ask you this. Is there any way to do what you have to do to win in politics without having to make the kinds of compromises that go into uh, the gray area of one's integrity? Well, you know, it's one of the hardest questions I've had to answer because I feel guilty every day. I feel proud that I did the wedding and I feel guilty because I allowed an insane wackadoo to come in behind and to use that as a cudgel against me and even the men that I married um, and to say the worst things and to win on that. And I always wondered, you know, should I have tried to pick a better time to do it? And I'm thinking, no, God dang it. No, I, 
I need to be the right, I need to do the right thing at the right time, or, or I sort of go against who I am. But does that somehow leverage or compromise the American public knowing that the guy who came behind me, you know, is so, some low rent conspiracy theorist mouth breather, right? That's just going to follow the line of the Freedom Caucus, no matter what, and follow the line of the committees in our district that are, you know, also, you know, maybe have been addicted to huffing glue their whole lives based on what they believe. So those are the things that, you know, that I, that I, that I have to sort of deal with every day with my conscience is that I didn't go all the way in, but I couldn't because I just couldn't live with myself. Yeah. And I mean, that's the, that's the truth of it. I, but would I run again? Maybe, but it would have to be for an executive position. Cause there's no way everybody's like, God, you know, you must miss Congress and the, and the power that I had the power. I was a backbencher. You know what I did do? I get the number one reservation of the Capitol grow though. You know, I was a Congressman. So I got really good restaurant reservations. Um, <laughs> So, you know, had good I, healthcare that, you know, for a couple of years. <laughs> I had good health. Yeah. I pay for my, you know, we, we have our own company. So we do that. I went to much cooler parties in the military and overseas than I did in Congress. You know, I had much cooler parties. Uh, I've had a hell of a life. You know, That's Congress awesome. is just part of this service and not the highlight of my life at all. I, I probably got fired from the worst job I ever had, to be honest. Oh, man. So um, the, I, I want to read a, another way that you kind of summarize your 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 political sure. uh, disposition. You say, I believe in removing unnecessary regulations to allow small businesses to grow and entrepreneurs to succeed. I'm a strong Second Amendment guy. At the same time, I support gay marriage and legalizing marijuana. My line was that I didn't want a party small enough to fit in anyone's bedroom. While I lean pro-life, <laughs> I believe in the right to abortion early on in a pregnancy, and I'm adamant about exceptions for victims of rape or incest or for when the mother's health is at stake. Is there a party for those beliefs? I mean, I think that represents a plurality of us, or at least we're somewhere adjacent to all. There's a plurality that are adjacent to all of what you articulated, right? That that the extremists are the, the vast minority, but yet they're the loudest. They're taking all the oxygen out of the room. So is there a home for, for people like us? I don't know, because uh, I had a, a conversation with somebody like Denver, you know, I was in my distillery uh, two days ago. Now you got to remember too, Corey. I mean, I got a, what hundreds of thousands of people come through my distillery. I, it's not just Congress and running for office where I've met so many people. I mean, I get to meet a lot of people drinking and in whiskey Veritas, my friend, trust me. <laughs> so, right. So, you know, so here we are. And it's this lady who's been a fan of mine for so long. She goes, you're going to run again. I said, I don't know, Jane. That's not her real name. Yeah. I don't know, Jane. I don't think I'm going to run again. I said, but I do appreciate you here drinking uh, our whiskey. I said, happy. I said, I'll buy you a drink. She goes, well, you know, Denver, I, you know, I got to drive us. Okay. Gotcha. Uh, we don't, we don't want you that. So she goes, uh, you need to reiterate to me what your position is on abortion. So I'm going to run this by you. I don't have to freaking quibble anymore. I can tell exactly people exactly what I think the truth, Den what Denver Riggleman thinks. And so here you go. Wait till you hear. <laughs> I said, okay. I said, listen, when I ran for Congress, I said I was pro-life, pro but I had exceptions for rape, incest, and health of the mother. The reason I got in trouble, Corey, and I told her this, the reason I got in trouble is they said, if you say health of the mother, you're actually pro-life. I mean, pro-choice. You got to say life of the mother. You can't say health of the mother because it could be mental health or any health thing between her and her doctor. So Denver, you know, you were actually projecting as being pro-choice and you were lying about being pro-life. Okay. Wow. So I said, that's, that's what happened to me. I said, but I've even changed more based on my three daughters and my wife. She goes, well, how's that? I said, I think up to scientific viability of the child, it's always between a mother and her doctor and family. Mm. Now I said, now, it, is it a 15 or 20 weeks where there should be restrictions? I said, I do have a belief in that. I think that once a, once a child is identified as being viable outside the womb, I think that does become something that is as a society, we have to take into consideration that that is a child that's alive outside the womb. And as far as life's concerned, I think they have rights. So I said, I think restrictions should be after 15 to 20 weeks. I think there should be restrictions on abortion. But up until that point, I think it's between the mother, her doctor and her family. That's Denver Riggleman. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And she goes, well, then I can't vote for you. Life begins at conception. And so she goes, you know, that's she goes, there's God says it. I said, OK. I said, understand that. I said, but what if, um, which has happened, what if a 12-year-old is raped by her father? Life begins at conception. There's no way, there's just no way for me, I don't know if there is a place. I guess I'm, I'm using that that story, Court. I don't, 
I don't know if there's a place for somebody who's trying to say, hey, nope, there's never going to be a, a nationwide, we're hoping never will have a, a nationwide abortion ban. And by the way, the, most people in America, if you poll them, 80% don't think abortion should be viable up to the moment of pregnancy. So let's find out scientifically where we're at in that boundary. And if I piss off the fringes on the left and the right, I can't help it. That's where I'm at. I'm never going to, again, try to parse my words for a specific audience. And if you don't like it, then don't vote for me. I don't give a rat's ass Yeah. because this isn't my career. I don't need you. I don't need this. I'm trying to serve my country because I believe in it as an American. I took the oath as a military officer. But that's the thing you have, Corey, is how do you parse through these things? How do you if you're trying to always say, OK, I want to do the best for our country, but I I just don't ascribe to either end of the crazy for me or either end of the belief systems that are this extreme. Where does that leave me? I don't know, Corey, I, because that's not where the money's at. It's not hyperbole. It's not outrage. You're trying to speak in a way that you're trying to come to grips with their feelings and you don't want to go against religion. Right. You don't want to destroy their belief system or to belittle it or mock it. But you also understand that. My Lord, man, I have three daughters and a wife. If my daughter you know, got pregnant at 13 to 14 years old, I'd want her to have that option, right, where she doesn't have a child at that young age. I want her to have that option, and I'll be goddamned if I'm going to have somebody coming in here and telling what my daughter can do at 13 or 14 years old. So now, right, that is nuanced. That is not this black and white. I would say I'm not pro-life or pro-choice. I'm pro-regulation, right? And I think that's where I think we need to have this sort of this this – argument or this debate about how this tribal party system drives us to the extremes no matter what. Yeah, there's so much uh, what you just said there. There's so much there to respond to. Um, first of all, I think a lot of the work is done on a one-on-one -on -one level. Like what can we all do is have those conversations, those personal intimate conversations, whether it's with somebody who comes to visit your, your business or whether it's over the Thanksgiving table or at your Bible study. I mean, I've had those conversations and my response as a Christian who is, okay, look, is that what God says? Let's look at it. And we start with Genesis, Genesis 2-7. There is a moment in between the creation of Adam, human being, and when he gets the spirit of life, when God breathes the spirit of life. So there is life, but there is not, you know, it's not at the conception of the very first human being. So let's look at scripture. Where else does it say? You want to look at Proverbs? You want to look at Psalms? Where else does it say? Let's read it. But let's read the whole thing. Let's not take a half of a, like take a scalpel, take a half, half a verse here, half a verse there to make it make, say an argument that we've already arrived at before we actually dealt with scripture. So that's one thing, but I, I, I don't want to squash on somebody's belief system. I want to take it seriously, but let's take it seriously. Always. Let's have the conversation. But I don't think I even earn the right into that conversation unless I have the relationship. So I think your approach now is great. I think you can also have, maybe you're not, um, uh, you know, in Congress, but you can be on um, your congressman's committee having influence. Um, I voted against my Democratic State Assembly member, but became friends with her uh, subsequently. And she had me on her small business committee, even though we still disagreed more than half the time, three quarters, 80 percent of the time. She still worked language into legislation that she was helping to craft because I was a, a, a small business conservative on uh, a, a progressive small it's, business uh, committee. It's so wonderful. Yeah. I, I, that's, that's how it should be, man. And I don't think people realize, I, I think social media, I think alternate media has tribalized us to a way, I don't know if the two-party system actually survives much longer uh, with how poisonous the data environment is. And, yeah. you know, I think there needs to be a third or fourth way. And Corey, I don't know, you know, for me, who still, you know, has sort of removed myself from religion, but every now and then thinks I'm still going to hell, <laughs> you know, so, you know, um, so, you know, it's uh, or or heaven, right? Depending on the day. Yeah. You know, it's really difficult because I I'm such a religious liberty guy too, as you know, you probably can feel it, right? I, you know, you, your belief systems are your belief systems, and that's what made this country great, right? Is we have this ability to have three freedom of thought and freedom of religion, and you know, wow, right? That's pretty amazing to have that. But when, but when you have people demagoguing issues, or when you have this sort of this fringe element that can make a lot more money and push their message into the ecosystem, you know, over, over people who are just going to work every day makes it very, very difficult for sort of an even keel to find its way through the choppy waters of the two-party system, honestly. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you this about heaven and hell. If, um, <laughs> you know, you, you quote a lot of people who are, who are very fluent in the language of God, but they kind of pick and choose and they have like Bible-ish sounding uh, language that they use, that they deploy. They do. 
you know, and, and if, if uh, the Ginny Thomases and, and the Donald Trumps and the, you know, uh, Alex Joneses, like they're pretty fluent in that Bible-ish language. If they're going to heaven, they I, I don't want to have anything to do with that kind of heaven. You know what I'm saying? No, I don't either. I don't either, Corey. You're, 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 you're hitting the nail on the head, man. You just so, hit the nail on the head. So I, so speaking of which I do want to, I do want to, um, there's so much to talk about here. <laughs> we haven't even touched on January 6th and your work on the nope, committee. So let's, let's talk about some of that stuff. Um, there sure. are so many quotes uh, that, that you share, text threads and, and other intel that you share in the book. So one that jumped out at me, um, uh, Congressman Louis Gomer wrote to Mark Meadows, when we lose Trump, we lose our republic. Fight like hell and find a way. We're with you down here in Texas and refuse to live under a corrupt Marxist dictatorship. Liberty! I was like, does he really think he's Braveheart? <laughs> you know, does he really believe this shit? Like, number one, does he believe that Trump is the actual and only savior of the US of A? Does he actually believe what he's saying about the, the uh, Biden administration? Does, does he even know what actual Marxism is? I had so many questions in that quote alone. So what do you tell, tell us what your thoughts are on that. <laughs> Well, I think, uh, you know, I met Louie personally. I talked to him many times. Great guy, you know, one-on-one if you're just, you know, if he's making barbecue. Um, but I don't think he's the brightest bulb at the Home Depot, you know. So I think uh, I think he does believe in sort of this religious bent, especially the Freedom Caucus. It's a, it's a Petri dish, right? And that sort of crazy bacteria grows in every meeting at the Conservative Partnership Institute, CPI. I was there. I only went to, I think, maybe three or four total meetings. And I'm like, this is nuts. I mean, and, and there's other Congress people who know what I said afterwards. I'm like, what have I done here? What, why am I in here? Um, and people question me too, right? They're like, Denver, what are you doing? Right. Especially after the wedding. They're like, what, what do you I'm like? Well, I thought the Freedom Caucus would maybe be a, a more a, a, a free exchange of thoughts, but it's really a, a Trump based protection society. They're like the Praetorian Guard for idiot ideas. And uh, so you know, and there's some good people in there, though. That's the thing is the Freedom Caucus as a whole. You can say, man, there's some nuts in there. And there is. But there's a couple of people, especially from the state of Virginia, that actually they're very smart, very good people. Morgan and Ben um, that I that I treat as friends lately. I mean, a couple they've had to do some things to, I think, go against their true nature to stay elected, which is sad. But when I was first in there, they're like, Denver, you know, you have to be in here because you're in a Virginia district. You have to or you're not going to be reelected. Mm. That was it. Right. And, and, and this should shock people. I hope what I'm telling you, I do hope they're like, wait a minute. So you tell me you have to do these things in certain districts to get elected. Yes. Regardless of that, I ran for office and had to do this thing. I won by one vote, one vote in my nominating process. Oh, in the nomination process. OK. Yeah. In the nominate. If I didn't say I was going to be on the Freedom Caucus, I would have lost. Mm. That's just it's that simple. Right. And that was my first political decision. Real political decision in the political sphere was saying I would be a member of the Freedom Caucus to win, not because I believed in it, to win. And so when you see Louis Gohmert, when you see him talking about liberty, he's a star in his own evangelical movie. Right. He is Braveheart in his own head. I mean, just look at the speeches he gave on the floor, Louis Gohmert hour. Right. Yeah. So um, that's that's the thing, Corey, is, yeah, I think some of these are true believers and we have to some people are grifters. They're going to say whatever they get elected, but we do have true believers. And I think Louie is damn close to that line of true believer in Congress. And he meant what he said on that text because um, really it's his, it's his nature and his past performance. And the things he said before, how he votes and how he acts is definitely in line with that text. You know, there are so many, um, so many references that you made, whether it was the Mike Lundell speeches or the Alex Jones speeches, the uh, <laughs> yeah. what's his name? Um, uh, the other one, the Roger Stone speeches. But there was there was one um, you dealt with uh, Ginny Thomas's uh, work. Um, I just had a smack. Hold on one second. I think I had a. Oh, my goodness. Something just I think my wife just dropped a bunch of dishes out there. Hold on one second. It's all right. Hey, honey. honey, Are you okay? I might just leave this in the recording, man. (laughs) I hope. Yeah. I, you know, as I run out there, because we have a brand new Aussie Shepherd. He's a year and two months. And it's like trying to it's trying to wrangle a lion. Um, so I don't know if, you know, so anyway, there you go. So I'm so, back. I'm back. I'm you're back. good. I'm back. We're good. We're good. So buried in the yeah. many text messages we have uh, of um, Ginny Thomas to, to Mark Meadows is one line that I thought helps us understand the mindset, not just of Ginny Thomas, but of many of our friends, neighbors and relatives, just like what you're talking about now. She said, uh, one of the things she said is the most important thing you can realize right now is that there are no rules in war. So, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but if that's the mindset, anything can be justified. 
spiritual warfare. I've heard it in my own face. You got to remember too, you know, I've, I've been very, you know, fortunate to be called the tool of the Antichrist, uh, the general, the sodomite armies, original. Um, I've been called, my wife was called the spawn of Satan. She was accused of funneling money for George Soros or laundering money through our distillery court. I don't know. And listen, and if I'm the tool of the Antichrist and she's a spawn of Satan, we're the strongest power company couple in the world. I mean, and the whiskey's really good. <laughs> and the whiskey's good, right? We're drinking and throwing miracles around. Um, so, you know, when you look at um, when you look at spiritual warfare and what Jenny said, and if you read a lot of those text messages, you know, and all her texts have been released, all of it really was a baseline that God is telling her to do this, or this is a God-based mission area, is to get Trump back in office. So, and there are no war, war, rules in warfare. And, and, that, and that forwarded text from Connie Hare, Louis Gohmert's chief of staff, you know, you have a Supreme Court justice wife interacting with congressional members, right? And a chief of staff. All of them have direct access to the president or to Mark Meadows, the chief of staff or the president. My Lord, right? Um, not to be weird, but at this point, when she says there's no wars and warfare, they also reference the fact that this is our Omaha Beach moment. Mm. So, so if there's no rules, right, we're in a spiritual war, Right. That means that there really is no baseline that you need to use for policy or truth and actually to enact this war, execute it. Now you go back to QAnon, stop the steal, save our children. Right. The storm, the great awakening. Right. The new world order. Right. Globalist. Right. The protocols of the elders of Zion. Now you're going into actually this sort of mishmash, this conspiracy sticky bomb called QAnon. Right. That she had really grasped or held on to. And a lot of that is based on religious belief, sadly. Right. And if you look at the people who believe QAnon most fiercely, many of them are very evangelical. I'm not saying all I'm not saying all Christians, Corey, I'm not saying all evangelicals. I'm just saying that is metastasized in certain parts of the religious community, Christ based religious community. That's that's where she's at. And I think people should be very aware that spiritual warfare against Democrats or against people who are not like you is something that some of these individuals ascribe to. Yeah. Yeah, man, there's a lot to explore there. And uh, <laughs> plenty of data has been done. I just We just talked to um, the uh, head of uh, PRRI that did a, a, a very expansive uh, research project. And it's, it's striking that if I walked into my church, it's very likely that if I look to my left and I look to my right in the pews, at least one, if not both of those uh, church friends are, if not part of white uh, nationalist movement, they're at least sympathetic to it, whether they would articulate it that way or not. Um, but before we start to wind things down, I we obviously need to talk a little bit more specifically about January 6th. The book, your book, The Breach, provides a lot of data, a lot of information that substantiates a couple of, I mean, bombshells. Uh, as you put it, uh, one is House Republicans played a major role in the official efforts to overturn the election. And the other one, is the interactions between the West Wing and militant extremists went beyond the phone call to the rioter that took place during the attack. So I'm curious, since the publication of the book, we've learned many more specifics on this front. Do you think any members of Congress or any staffers will ultimately be held accountable or, or perhaps um, uh, part of, of special counsel Jack Smith's work? No, no. I, you know, I think uh, a lot of it has to do, I don't know if people know, don't know this or not, you know, congressional emails are not foilable. And if you look at that, there's a there's a lot of individuals also that that had found out about encrypted apps pretty pretty quickly. If you look at the text messages oh. like Scott Perry from Pennsylvania, yeah, they're using signal and things like that. So the other thing too is that they are congressional representatives, um, and there is a multi-tiered system of justice sometimes in this country. And but what is illegal? If they truly believe the election was stolen. The issue that you have, Corey, right, is that. If they're doing things with that belief system, if they're not committing wire fraud, which they tried to stay on the edge of that, and like we, that's a whole nother freaking hour of discussion on wire fraud and fundraising, which I think is one of the most radicalizing elements in the country is fundraising emails uh, and digital fundraising. If you're looking at that, yeah, these individuals were a part of this. You think Marjorie Taylor Greene, January 17th, said we should have martial law and that there was a group that she was talking to of congressional representatives who also agreed with her. That should shock people. That should be so overwhelming right there that that should that you should never vote for that human being. She's obviously unhinged, has no idea about this country, believe the election was stolen based on QAnon. Somebody was a 9-11 truther. My Lord, Corey, what, what are we doing, right? So these people are unhinged. They might be on the edge of sanity. They're grifters. They want to keep, you know, they're like, um, they're like herpes sores on Trump, right? They're, they're, they, they're just not going to go away. 
Um, and that's the that's the thing that you have here is that with these people that you have in office right now, or people that believed in it, I don't think that there's ever going to be any accountability for those congressional representatives. And I'll give you one more example. After my book came out, everybody should have asked about this phone call, but the White House numbers, nobody could access who had called that writer that day. So an NBC reporter went out and looked at my book and saw that a Oath Keeper had tried to text the White House in December of 2020. That's in my book. He called that individual, Kelly Sorrell, and she said she had been texting with Andrew Giuliani while he was a White House staffer, the son of Rudy Giuliani. So now you got one of the leaders of the Oath Keepers texting directly with White House staff. Shouldn't we have a moment? Shouldn't we at this point say we have a real problem if we have a White House, regardless of how intense those texts were, actually humored some of the worst parts of society? And for a lot of people, like you said about the person to your left and your right, Corey, those people might think the Oath Keepers are, are, are dandy. I don't know. But what I'm saying is that there's so much there that I couldn't get to because either stonewalling or the authorities of Congress or the resource issues that I had. But still what I saw based on doing years of counterterrorism and, 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 and terrorism targeting methodologies and, and looking at situational awareness and common operational pictures, doing all that, there's something so fundamentally broken with what happened that day that I don't know if we're going to get over it anytime soon. I don't think we are going to get over it. I still, I still think from what I know and the 38 million lines of data we have, we need two or three more years of parsing that data to actually get to the bottom of exactly who is behind most of this in, in a sort of command and control way. So you had serious limitations. It's another thing that's striking is that if Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, tweet farted out some, you know, crazy conspiracy theory ridden uh, tweet that um, she could raise more money than, than your entire budget for what you were given on the January 6th commission. Correct. Um, do you think that Smith's investigation was able to go to that next level and the next level after that, that you were seeking when you were first setting up your team uh, for your work on the January 6th committee? Goodness, I hope so. You know, for instance, you know, Mark Meadows fought us getting his call records. So the reason that he could fight us is because we didn't have warrant power. We only had subpoena power. And that subpoena power wasn't for a criminal investigation. It was for the public trust. Now, I've been, I think I'm pretty sure that Jack Smith has Mark Meadows phone records. You know, and the limitation that I have, you're like, well, Denver, you got 2,300, you know, 2,319 of his texts, right? Wow. Great. We can't confirm if he sent us all his texts. I don't have his call records. I, right. He could have. Now, was he a dumbass to send all those? Um, it was great for America. I don't know if it was great for him legally. Um, I'm glad he did because it allowed us to go off into multiple directions. That really was the roadmap to the insurrection was Mark Meadows text. Um, but I think that Jack Smith, you know, with his ability to pull those phone records, regardless of, of a court case, because, you know, Mark Meadows pretty much sued for us not to get his phone records. Um, I think that he does have more information. I just think that they need to move a little bit quicker. Yeah. One thought occurred to me. I mean, you, you have been charging forward basically since you came out of the womb. And uh, you don't strike me as a guy with a ton of regrets, but if you could take just a mulligan, if not a regret, if you could take a mulligan for any of your work, uh, maybe let's say, because you, you did a lot of education in the 90s, UVA grad, and then ultimately part of the, the Freedom Caucus. If you could take a mulligan for anything, whether it's for you personally or for the conservative movement more generally, uh, would there be any? If so, what would they be? Yeah, I mean, if from what you just said, and this is going to shock people, I think a little bit, if I had to take a mulligan, I would have never run for Congress. Oh, man. And so and I think, um, listen, it was an incredible experience. Um, and it was uh, but what it did to my family and my health. And, you know, I'm good, but it was brutal. Now, there's a flip to that, as you know, boy, did I learn. You cannot bullshit me. You can't say, oh, this is how Congress works. So like I was there. I was there not only as a congressman, but as a senior staff member of the J6 committee. And I went against the sitting members then because we just weren't aggressive enough. And I, great people, they just didn't have the, the background. So I think for me, if I had to go back, how about this? How about not, how about this? I'd have never sat up there and said I would have joined the Frito Caucus. I would not have uh, that one moment have gone against my principles just to get elected because I thought the people I was running against were nuts and they were. Mm. And that decision, but on the other hand, that decision also gives me guilt because I wonder the person who we were running against at that time was maybe worse than anybody in the Freedom Caucus today. Mm. 
so an evangelical purist who even thought that Thomas Jefferson should not be part of any of our history and thought that we should have only God-based laws um, that comes directly from the Bible. And so, you know, so now I guess, Corey, I think it's, I think it's me always trying to get back to who I thought I was before Congress. But on the other hand, being able to execute those lessons that I learned, right, in a way that, that I can make people understand how it really is. And if people hate me for it, again, I just don't care. I, I just, I guess, can't even care. And, you know, I think there's an exhaustion after 53 years of this, and I'm starting to st caring a little bit, Corey. But on the other hand, you know, when I see some dumbass, you know, pop their head out like a Green or a Bobert or a Gates or any of these individuals, and, and on the left too, I'm not a fan of Rashida Tlaib, let me tell you, right? So I think I really enjoy using a facts-based canon, you know, to splatter that all over whatever stupid shit that they're saying that day. So there is some enjoyment in that, but if I had to go back, it would not be compromising who I was in that one moment to win a congressional race or a congressional nomination. Well, for what it's worth, I'm grateful that you were in Congress because I think it gave you maybe a, a little bit more of a platform than you otherwise would have had at this point in your career, in your life. So I'm well, grateful for that. Well, Bigfoot is complicated. It wouldn't be being shot for a movie right now. I <laughs> there mean, you I go. Mean, you know, awesome. I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, come on. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so, you know what, you know who Congress helped Bigfoot very, very much. And, uh, you know, and the believers of the Bigfoot, you know, myth system. So, so real quick, we talked a lot about the breach, but I haven't referred to the Bigfoot book nearly as much. So give, give uh, your elevator pitch on the Bigfoot so that, and we'll definitely have links in the show notes for it. So I got another 10 minutes, Corey, if you want to go, I got another 10 minutes, if you want to give it a shot, I got, yeah, if you want to. So, um, but if you have to go at one also, that's okay. Um, no, I'm good. I'm good. The only, the only thing that's restricting me is you're, you're already in the afternoon. I'm still waiting to crack open my first whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's true. Yeah. So Bigfoot is complicated. Um, I wrote that I self-published it for fun uh, because it was my first attempt to um, paint what myth and culture and what uh, conspiracy theories can do to people. So I started going on Bigfoot expeditions as a joke in 2004 when I told my wife for our 15 year anniversary, we're going on a special trip. And I took her on a Bigfoot expedition instead of Hawaii, which was almost a divorce <laughs> issue. So and you're still married. <laughs> well, it's a hell of a story, by the way. She was oh, not man. happy. Um, that was awful. Um, so I thought it was as a joke. But when I started talking to people who had all these different belief systems, I saw that there were four distinct Bigfoot belief systems. There were the BE believers, biological entity believers who believed it was just a you know, a link from, uh, you know, Gicanopithecus blackie or Homo erectus, right? And it was uh, some kind of missing link or a gorilla. Then you had the magic man theory, which is sort of the Nez Perce and the Native American mythologies on Bigfoot, which that's that's huge, right? Then you had the interstellar Bigfoots that were beamed down by UFOs and aliens, the greys, right? It's sort of scouts for the greys. But then you had the mystical Bigfoot or the spiritual Bigfoot who was protecting us from the Draco, Dracos in this 200 million year plus war between the five harmonic universes or the interdimensional battle of other beings that want to take over, you know, the earth. Oh man, you got deep. <laughs> yeah. So those are the four really major Bigfoot systems. And I got to talk to all of them on my first expedition. So I'm like, wait a minute, this sounds almost like, and they hate, some of them hate each other. I'm like, this is almost like religions on their, they, they agree that there's a God-like entity, but they're not quite sure how that God-like entity, entity likes to interact with us mere humans wow, this feels like a cult. This feels weird, like a myth gone bad or myth gone good. I mean, I don't think there's going to be Bigfoot believers attacking the Capitol. So anyway, um, so this is also the book that I was painted, even though nobody had read it yet, that my Democratic <laughs> opponent said that I was into Bigfoot erotica. So I was, <laughs> I, was, I, was, I, was, I was on Saturday Night Live. I was spoofed on Saturday Night Live on Colbert, Fallon, Kimmel. I was number one worldwide on Twitter because I guess everybody thought that I liked to have sex with Bigfoot beings or I was a Bigfoot furry. And it was just amazing to me that a book about disinformation, I was in the Democratic opponent, who was Olivia Wilde's mom, <laughs> okay. lied about me, right? Lied about me, about Bigfoot. And then I became this mocking, mocked, uh, you know, Republican candidate who loves Bigfoot sex. And my book that she was using was a book about disinformation. Uh, that's, I mean, that's ironic. Yeah, that's irony. Right. So I got a call from a major Hollywood producer after The Breach came out. And he goes, hey, Denver Riggleman, do you have any audio rights or video rights to your book? And I thought he was talking about The Breach. I'm like, well, I am talking to 
a few people. I'm sorry, man. He goes, wait, he goes, your Bigfoot book has audio and video rights. I'm like, what? My Bigfoot book? What the hell are you talking about? No. <laughs> you know? So he goes, I want that book. Right. So, so uh, yeah, I've been talking to him and, and uh, going to LA next week, I think to, to talk to him more. I, the Bigfoot book series or movie might be made before the breach. So, wow. I mean, by the way, so Corey, I don't know what the hell's going on in my life. It's crazy, man. It's crazy. You know, running distilleries, uh, I got my new technical business. I got a high-end client that's going to knock your socks off when I come up on national news next week. So uh, it's going to be nuts again for me. It's almost going to be like 60 minutes again. So it's going to be a crazy ride for me and my family over the next week or two. Uh, so uh, yeah, I'm still doing crazy shit, man. And uh, it's all about it's all about bullies, man. It's all about fighting bullies. So I want to I want to put in a request. Uh, I'll talk to your people, and your people can talk to my people. If you're out in SoCal, I need to take you to a, a restaurant that will change your life. I, I'm okay. not a great a, a Christian evangelist, but if I brought as many people to heaven as I brought to Katsuya, <laughs> I'd be front row Dude, seat in heaven, man. I'm, I was thinking about flying out next week or the week after. So I'll let you know. Please I'm do. Happy to. They, I, yeah, Cause I'm usually, cause I have a buddy who lives up in Santa Cruz, but I also go down to LA all the time. So, yeah, it, so yeah, Cal, I'm either in LA or so I will, you got it. Um, so, okay. A couple more questions and then, and then we'll wrap sure. up. This is the TPNR question. What do you think each of us can do to be uh, able to share space with, have better conversations with, nurture relationships with people across our differences, people who think differently than we do, who have different beliefs than we do, who get their news from different sources than we do? How can we do better at talking politics and religion without killing each other? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a house-to-house -house battle. But when I say battle, I think it's an intellectual and empathetic battle, right? I think, um, honestly, people cannot be afraid to confront something that's, you know, provably wrong in real time. I think you can do it with politeness and respect. But uh, it just happened to me like, you know, the other day when I had, you know, a person come up to me and said, well, you know, I think Trump is just a very truthful person. He's never lied. And so I brought out about, I said, listen, um, you know, I was a Republican, but let me tell you a couple of things that he did where he did things that were completely inappropriate. The person goes, when, when did that happen ever? I said, well, he did retweet and did a, a video where it said that President Obama and now President Biden helped kill SEAL Team 6 after um, they covered up the fact that Osama bin Laden's body double had been killed and not Osama bin Laden himself. And I just let that sit there. They're like, what? I said, the issue that you have, I said, is that you're listening to a specific set of people or an echo chamber. And I'm, I'm talking like this. I said, expand. I said, always go with data and facts. I said, I want to tell you one thing, Lucy. I said, uh, not her real name either. Yeah, yeah. I, I said, Lucy, um, and it could be Bob. I, I try to protect people. I said, um, I said, Lucy, Bob. I said, um, listen here. I said, you have to at some point have to look beyond, you know, your specific set of people that you listen to. And at some point, when you're talking to somebody like me, I want to promise you something as a human being. I'll never lie to you. I'll tell you exactly where the facts and data came from. I'll give you the source. So here's what I would say. I'm going to wrap it up right now very quickly. Corey, everybody who has an argument with somebody, just ask them, what's your source? Mm. That might be the title of this episode. What's your source? Wow. What's your source? And people have, a, I, people have broke down, not broke down like, like oh, but they have broke down around me like, well, I saw it on, um, I, I read it somewhere. Well, please tell me where you read that. I'd like to know that because here's my source. My source is that I saw every single phone call and text message, right, between certain individuals in a data-specific way, in a faxed-validated way that allowed me to see who was talking to who. And then we talked to them in interviews about what they said on those phone calls and then validated their geographic location. So I knew exactly what they were, what they were saying, and who they were connected to. Mm. How do you – How? why do you think Ray Epps is actually an FBI plant? Go. Mm. Well, I read it on a – uh, oh, Darren Beatty from Revolver put it out there. Well, let me tell you about him, right? So then I go, if you look at that article, right? If you look at Ray Epps specifically, I've had this argument with people. He was never on the FBI's most wanted list. He was just on the ask question list. And have you ever asked why he was taken off? Because oh. it was a cover up by the globalist. No, because two days after he saw it, he called the FBI because his wife was mad at him. So that's that's what happened. Like I was there. I and. I said, I saw the phone records. Ray Epps was never in contact with any law enforcement or FBI until after January 6th when he thought he was in trouble, right? Because he had taken his son, his son, 
and his wife was not happy to this and was on a list. I said, that's why it happened. It's it, Occam's razor, and I have the data to prove it. So I think it's being able to do that empathetically and then saying, yeah. I will never lie to you. And we can always have these conversations and I'm here, but I think you need to look at other things. If we can be empathetic and ask them what their source is, I think you can maybe start to turn them in, in sort of this house to house relationship building type of thing with conspiracy theorists. Yeah. What is your source? That's a great place to start, but also in the, your winsomeness and how you do it, not in the combative coming out with elbows first, sharp elbows first, Never. but uh, winsomeness. So uh, one last question and one piece of business. Uh, any questions for me? Well, I have a question. Was there anything in the breach that you disagreed with? <laughs> or anything where you had pause? Yeah, you know, I think th th what comes to mind is when I put together that you ran based on joining the Freedom Caucus. And I, it wasn't that I disagreed with it. It was just that, oh, that's stuck because I know who is on the Freedom Caucus now. I know what the origins of it were. And in principle, I was kind of there too in 2010-ish. Yeah, um, but, in principle, but, yeah. But, but what it's become, I, I, so that was startling. So I, I was, I'm glad that you addressed that. Um, I'm trying to think, listen, I, far be it from me to disagree with anything because you have access to the actual intel, you know? Well, yeah, but I mean, you know, there's sometimes where I did put my opinion in there, like with Jenny Thomas, um, you know, especially with her background uh, based on LifeSpring, you know, and her cult upbringing yeah. and things like that. So, you know, and I knew that 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 even people who are facts or database said, did you have to go that deep? Did you have to go that far back? And I said, yeah. I said, because there's another thing in intelligence work. It's not just the source is that past performance is indicative of future performance. And I think, you know, that's part of the thing that I know that I'm okay with people saying, listen, Denver, you know, I see how you saw the Texas stuff, but they were just aspirational. They weren't really crazy, you know? Yeah. And so I've definitely had that kind of, and that's okay. Right. And I've had people said, maybe you shouldn't have put that in there about your mom, you know, and, and I get that too. So, but yeah, there are some things I'm sure maybe some people are like, you know, you're just full of shit, right? There's, we don't care about the data. You're full of shit or the data doesn't say this, right? That's not really where I came to, you know, that's not the conclusion I would have come to. And, I, and I'm okay with that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, listen, I think there's probably pieces of legislation that we would vote differently on, you know, uh, right. when it comes to uh, gun legislation, for example. But it's right. The thing is, I think the way that you go about it, there are those who miss that, that overgeneralize, mischaracterize and vilify folks who vote would vote differently than they would on any particular politician or pieces of legislation. So that's where I'm more open to the conversation. I'm more open to being persuaded about your point of view. So it's a little bit more nuanced of an answer than, oh, you're totally full of shit. You're totally wrong. You know, I, I didn't have any of those moments when I was reading the book. So that's OK, man. I, you know, I've taken it all. I mean, I remember it was in front of 50 people that a guy in a MAGA hat ran up to me with three others. And he goes, you're the general of the sodomite armies. He goes, I've read about you because I read that you're George Soros funded. You, you did a gay wedding. That's against God. You're the general, man, the general, the sodomite armies. And I read about you. And he's screaming in my face. So finally I said, hold on a second. And I'm a congressman, right? My staff yeah. is coming around me. There's people, all, there's people wondering what's going on. They're standing up. It's insane. I said, let me ask you one question. He goes, what? I said, you can read. So that's how, you know, that's how I. <laughs> <laughs> I would have loved to have been there. <laughs> That's awesome. It was great. So, great. so yeah, that, that wasn't exactly diffusing, but I, but I've been, I've been hit by so many different things, man, that I'm almost to the point. I just smile now. I'm like, man, uh, if you think I'm a reptilian humanoid and yeah. I took this human skin from a dead body and made myself into Denver Riggleman, that's cool. Yeah. That's so cool. I did ask you before we started how I should refer to you. New York Times bestselling author, uh, former congressman. Now I know how to refer to you. General, General Riggleman. <laughs> <laughs> now, listen, I only made captain in the Air Force before I got out. So, you know, I don't want to steal any honor here. But uh, yeah, so uh, yeah, that's it's uh, yeah, the, the general man. But no, I appreciate it. So I do. How can we follow you find more information about Silverback Distillery and uh, all the great work that you're doing? Yeah, Silverback Distillery is at sbdistillery.com. We're also on TikTok, Instagram. My daughters, you got to remember, it's a, it's a woman-owned company, so it's brilliantly run much better than if I did it. Obviously, you can see about my sterling political career. But um, so they, um, yeah, so my wife and daughter are master distillers. 
Um, it's a fantastic thing. Um, and my other daughter does all our media and my third daughter is getting her master's in uh, game design and uh, it's pretty amazing. I got some pretty smart kids. Um, as far as me, Rep Riggleman uh, or Denver4VA, those are my two Twitter accounts. I'm on Instagram every now and then. Uh, I think it's Rep Riggleman or Denver Riggleman every now. I post dog pictures because I don't give a rats. What are you going to do on Instagram anyway? Um, so, you know, you got that going on. I used to be on Facebook a lot, but Facebook is a little odd. So every now and then I'll post something. So you can follow me on Facebook. Again, if you like to see dog pictures or me dancing to 80s or 90s rap music, fantastic. <laughs> that's um, great. If that's, your th- if, that's, if that's your thing, come on, join me. I don't give oh, a rat. Or if every or every now and then, I'll, you know, like this is so bad, what I'm about to shit. But here I am at my work desk, right? And I got some green spot pot Irish whiskey stuff oh, right here. Oh, man, look at that. From my last uh, podcast court, so yeah, I, I so if you if you like drinking, if you like you know bourbon, if you like music, and you like some politics, and you like cults and conspiracies, um, and you like some data fact based crap, uh, I'm your guy. Um, so <laughs> enjoy, you know, if you want. But uh, on the other hand, too, my life, as far as my life with my family, is about perfect. Outside of that, my life is a vortex of insanity. <laughs> and wackadoo. So that's pretty much how it goes, man. Well, definitely look me up if you are going to spend spend uh, an extra few couple hours in SoCal. I'll take you to uh, a, a restaurant that that will change your views on sushi if you if you have if you need to be convinced at all. And uh, I'm definitely going to going to hit you up when I, I come come out to uh, Pennsylvania or DC, Virginia area. And um, I, most of all, I'm just so appreciative of spending the time. I'm appreciative of your work. Uh, it was great to, you know, really get to know you and the work that you did through the breach. I'll definitely be reading the uh, the Bigfoot book and watching the movie when it comes out. But uh, really, thanks so much for spending the time, uh, President, <laughs> General, whatever the hell, General Riggleman, yeah. General Riggleman, yeah, General Riggleman, the source, the source, the yeah. source. But yeah, it's a. Uh, but I appreciate you, Corey. Thank you, man. And I appreciate you taking your time too today. You bet. And as always, if you dig what we're doing here, please hit that subscribe button, leave a review, comments, wherever you get your podcasts, and tell a friend about Talk Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Well, you can find us at politicsandreligion.us. You can find me at Corey S. Nathan. That's Corey with an E. S is in Sam at Corey S. Nathan. Now go talk some politics and religion. And maybe drink some whiskey with gentleness and respect and have a great week. 